Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. God found in the book of Genesis, chapter 17, reading from the beginning of that chapter. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. One of the paradoxes of our life is that it's oftentimes the things that you can't see that are the most important and the most determinative for life for you and for me. That's preeminently true and obviously true in the spiritual realm. Most of us have sung to remember the words of that great hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, In Light, Inaccessible, Hid from All Eyes. And when Walter Smith wrote that, he told us something about God that he didn't need to tell us. We can't see him. And if he's the basic fact of human existence, we have to come back to the reality that the most important thing in your life and mine is not in the realm of the visible and the measurable, but it's in the realm of the unseen. You will remember that the writer of the book of Hebrews, in speaking about the great man Moses, in trying to explain that inexplicable life, said that he endured because he could see the one that other people couldn't see. And because he could see the one that other people couldn't see, he could do things that other people couldn't do, and he could be what other people couldn't be. Now that fits with the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, because you will remember that it began with a statement about faith, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of the things you can't see. And it is faith that moves and dominates in the Christian's life. But if that's true of God's world and the spiritual world, the supernatural world, it is also true of much of the personal world, too, isn't it? It's the things in you and me that other people can't see, and that oftentimes they can't measure that really are the determinative things in our lives. What is it that gets into one person in the same home with another person, same parent, same community, but one lives according to relatively accepted norms. 
and seeks to be admirable, and another takes a totally different set of values. You know, uh, a few years ago I ran across a study done on Ph.D. candidates in the United States, and it told about where they did their undergraduate work and where they completed their Ph.D.s. It's the only study that I have ever found that showed like that, that showed where the recipients of Ph.D. degrees did their undergraduate work. And it was broken down by state, so I turned immediately to check and see what happened in Kentucky and how Asbury stood. I found that in the colleges in the state of Kentucky, Asbury was second between 1920 and 1966 in the number of students who went on and received Ph.D. degrees. I was intrigued by that. One of the reasons I was intrigued was because of the fact I spent four years here as a student and then went across the street and spent three years there. And I do not ever remember in the seven years that I was here anybody ever suggesting that higher education was a valid Christian mission field or a particularly valid area for Christian vocation. Now, perhaps they did, but the memory that I had was that the premium was placed on being the pastor or the evangelist or the missionary or the person like that. But here was this, the second in the state. I was equally intrigued by the, the institution in the state that led the state. Fortunately for me, at least I was glad they didn't lead us by too much, and they have been through the years a bit larger numerically than we, but it was Berea College. Now, you may not know, those of you students who are not from Kentucky, you may not know about Berea. But if your father went to Berea, the chances are that you can never go to Berea because the chances are you'll make too much money. I think in 1965, if your father made more than $5,000, you could not register at Berea College. It is for the underprivileged young people of Appalachia. And they have very strict restrictions, geographically and also financially, and every student who goes there has to work. So these were the underprivileged, the deprived young people of Appalachia, but they led the state in Kentucky and the number that went on and received Ph.D. degrees. So I thought, uh, how intriguing. What moved them? Now, frankly, I'm convinced that it was a basic social hunger, probably, that dominated that group. You know, if you're on the bottom and all of life is this way, there's something within you that would like sometime to get up there far enough that you could look this way for once, at least before it's all over with in your existence. And so here are underprivileged kids from Appalachia, deeply motivated to accomplish something and accomplish something in areas of which their parents knew absolutely nothing, probably. Now, that's a magnificent thing when you find that kind of hunger inside people. I uh, ran across a, a story that I used once in a regular year chapel, and some so the professors will all remember this if they were in chapel that morning. But uh, <clears throat> I found myself in Atlanta in a closed group of men, most of whom were significant Christian leaders, and we were being led in a devotional by a black preacher from the Watt section of Los Angeles, and uh, it was an unbelievably magnificent devotional. He was telling 
using the scripture about the four fellows who brought the paralytic to Jesus and were uh, ingenious enough and motivated enough to lure him through the roof, and so he was healed. And He was talking about God. He said, you know, uh, what a boring job it must be to be God. And he said, I think the most boring part of it all would be to have to listen to people's prayers. He said, think of the prayers you'd have to listen to. Dear God, bless me and my wife and my children this morning. They're blessed. (laughs) Blessed more than they know. (laughs) Or he said, some of you preachers that say, Lord, bless me and my staff and my church, my church members, make our church. He said, they're blessed more than they know. He said, but occasionally, even God gets a surprise. He said, you know, I think he was surprised when this happened. Four fellows brought a friend to Jesus to get him healed, believed Jesus could do something for him. He said, you think of that day when the three Hebrew children got thrown in the fiery furnace and began to pray. He said, I think even God waked up that day and looked down and said, boys, what under the sun are you doing in there? Well, I waked up at that point. man who can catch you like that. And he said, you see, God is waiting. There is a section in the nature of God slumbering, waiting to be challenged by any man who will believe and dare. Well, now, uh, I turned to the fellow who was sitting next to me, who was a businessman from Boston, and I said, who is this fellow? He said, you mean you don't know him? I said, no. Well, he says, he's pastor of a very large black Baptist church in the Watts community. But he said, let me tell you a story. He said when the riots were taking place in the 60s, the Black Panthers developed and E.V. Hill, this Baptist Panther, was put on their list to be killed. So he found out that they were on, he was on their list to kill him. So he decided he should go visit the Black Panthers. So he went and found their headquarters and went and knocked on the door of the headquarters. He said there was a peephole in the door, and he said he could tell somebody looked through that peephole, and he said he heard a voice saying, my God, it's E.V. Hill. It's interesting, when you get ready to kill people, you have to hide and lock doors, don't you? So he said, uh, I stood there, and he said, I heard a voice inside saying, what's he doing here? And another one said, well, you might as well let him in. So he said, I walked in. He said, I looked around and said, boys, they tell me you're looking for me. And they said, yeah, that's right. He said, why do you want me? They said, because you're ripping off our black people. Oh, he said, you think I'm ripping off our black people? Why do you think I'm ripping off our black people? Well, he said, look at that big white house you live in and look at that big black car you drive. Oh, he said, big black car and the big white house, it bothers you. He said, do you know why I have that big black car and that big white house? He said, when I was a kid, so small, that I couldn't pick enough cotton in one day to make 15 cents, he said, my mother crawled through the patched side of me. And while she filled her bag, she'd fill mine, because if mine wasn't full at the end of the day, they wouldn't pay me. And we had to have my 15 cents in order to eat. He said, I'd crawl out of my mother through that cotton patch, and as I crawled, I'd look, and there was that white man sitting on that porch, and he had a set of binoculars, and he'd watch us to see if we put in a whole day's work. And he said there were days when I'd turn to my mother and say, Mama, 
one of these days I'm going to own a big white house and you're going to sit on the porch and rock in a rocking chair like that. He said, and that white man would get in his black car and ride past our field there in West Texas or somewhere in Texas. And he said, as he'd ride past in his big black car, I'd say to my mother as we crawl through the field, Mother, one of these days I'm going to have a big black car. I'm going to come every day and take you for a ride. He said, you know, he said, if you'll go past that big white house on most afternoons at the right time, you'll see a frail little 80-some-year-old woman sitting in a rocking chair rocking. And she's waiting for me to come with my big black car to take her for her daily ride. That's why that white house and that black car. They gave him a standing ovation and he walked out free. Now, you know... Uh, I'm sure a lot of E.V. Hill's life is explained in terms of the grace of God. In fact, you can explain it all in terms of the grace of God. But part of what God used through his grace to make that man was a motivation and a hunger in him to get somewhere in life and to amount to something and to do something for somebody else. Now, those are pretty hard for the person on the outside to measure. But those are the things that are oftentimes determinative in life. Now, I'm convinced there's something else. Not only hunger, that kind of hunger, but there is also within us the matter of something perhaps even more noble than that, and that may be a sense of duty. Because every once in a while you'll bump into somebody who has plenty, who's born a success. Now, most of us weren't. But you take a man like Nelson Rockefeller. When he was born, he was a success and had no need. His grandfather gave away better than a half billion dollars. And his father, out of his own personal estate, gave away in those days before inflation of something better than $200 million. And when Nelson Rockefeller was in his 20s, President Roosevelt tapped him and he became his expert on Latin America. And the rest of Nelson Rockefeller's life was spent in public service. Now, I'm not about to pass judgment on all the goods and bads in Nelson Rockefeller's life, but why would a fellow do that? Ambition, yes. But if you go back and check the Rockefeller's family, you'll find that the old first John D. was a Puritan of Puritans and instructed his children and his grandchildren in a sense of moral duty. And he said, this wealth that we have places on us great responsibility. And so the family said, yes, we owe one of our family to public service, to give himself for the life of our nation. Now, that's a nobler thing to me, in a sense, when you come to the place where you don't do it just to satisfy necessarily your own ego, but there be somewhere within it an element of moral awe and an element of duty. You want to count, but one of the reasons you want to count is because you know you ought to count. Now, you know, that brings me to, to this. I think sometimes there are two groups of people in the world. There's one group of people that goes through life saying, is there anything wrong with that? If there isn't, that's the way I'm going to go. 
And there's another group that goes through a life saying, is it right? And if it isn't, I'm not going to touch it. Now, you can build a theoretical case for those two things being the same thing. Because it's obvious if I say, is it wrong? And you tell me it is, and I don't do that, then I've done what's right. You could theoretically make a case that if I say, is that right? And you say, yes, that's right, and I do it, then I haven't done what's wrong. But you know, there's a world of difference between the person who says, and nobody in the world may know that he's saying it except the person saying it. Who says, is it wrong? If it isn't, that's what I'm going to do. And the person who says, is it right? If it isn't, I'm not going to touch it. Because the two questions reflect two totally different points of view. They reflect two different attitudes. They reflect two different motivations within a person. The person who says, if it isn't wrong, I'm going to do it. If he does right, he does it by default, doesn't he? And if the person says, is it right? And he finds out it is, and he does it because it's right. He's done it by choice. It may be that he's done it by delight. And there's a world of difference between the person who does it because he chooses it. And the person who does it because it's the only option left when the others are ruled out. You know, there is a tendency in the human heart and the human mind that the farther we go on any path, the more careful and the finer distinctions we make. In the beginning, we make broad distinctions, but as we move down that path, we make finer and finer distinctions. And so, the person who says, is it wrong, will find within himself resources to begin to make distinctions that get finer and finer and finer. He gets closer and closer and closer and can justify a greater and greater proximity to that which is less than noble. But if that's true in that direction, the other is true in the other direction. As you make finer and finer distinctions, you see you're getting closer and closer to what ultimately will have to be said is not just the right, but is the best. And there is really where a person ought to be moving. If a man can come to the place where the touchstone in his volitional life is, is it right and is it the best, he'll live a different life. You're in college. You're making friends. Do you look at the friendship and say, is this the best one? You know, I found people that justified friendships that destroyed them. And I've seen people choose friendships that transform them for the good and for the better. Your spare time, the books you read. You'll never read a great many books. The person who says, is it wrong? 
will never know the best the world has to offer in literature. In fact, a man will have to make rather fine distinctions if he says, is it right? Is it the best? If he's ever able to say, he's read the best. Or take what you do with your time. You know, there are a lot of people who say, I'm tired, I'm weary, I need refreshment, recreation, and they choose something that's a time killer. And no man has a right to kill time. Because it's possible to use time in such a way that it is recreational, recreational. Rest and recreation can go together. Take the courses you take. You say, well, this get me my degree, and you'll have a poor degree. You say, does this prepare me to be the most effective person I can be in my vocation? You'll have a different kind of degree when you get through. And let me say, I'm not nearly as interested in the institution from which you got your degree as what the degree signifies that you have. I suppose one of the two best courses that I ever had in all the years that I went to school, and I think I figured it out once, and I think I spent 23 years sitting in class reciting like a first grader. And in all those years, I think the set, one of the two best courses that I ever took was a course at Princeton that I made a C on, and in graduate school, that's flunking. It's the only one I ever flunked in graduate school. But it's one of those courses that I chose and I was not ready for. But I got enough that it put me in a totally different world. And I really doubt if I'd be standing here this morning if it hadn't been for that choice. I listen to students and they talk about professors. And you know what I think thinks going on? They're saying, yeah, I'm going to stay away from him. He's tough and I might learn something. But he'd force me. You can keep on going. Our scripture lesson this morning was about Abraham. You didn't think I'd ever get there, did you? Abraham was one of those fellows who obviously had something in his life that you could, that the people on the outside couldn't grasp and measure, but it was there. You know where it came from? It came from his contact with a person that the other people couldn't see either. It came from his experiences with God. Because God came to him and spoke to him. And if God doesn't speak to you, I'm sorry for you. But God spoke to Abraham and said, I want to enter into a covenant with you and make your life count. You'll be the father of many nations. Kings will come out of you. Like King Hussein. And Anwar Sadat, you can keep on going, can't you? It's an incredible progeny. I love the fact that Abraham's children can't stay off of the American front page. But they can't. They can't stay off of NBC, CBS News in the evening. They're always there. God said to him, you're going to influence history. So he says, I want to tell you what I want you to do. I'll do my part if you do yours. And what is yours? 
Yours is this. Walk before me and be thou. And the Hebrew word is tamim. It's a great word. King James translates it perfect. The version I have here translates it blameless. Let me illustrate uh, from another language what it means. You know enough to know that Hebrew is a Semitic language, and oftentimes you can get insight into what a word means in one language from knowing something of its origin. And so in, in Semitics, if you want to know, if you want to master Hebrew vocabulary, one of the things you need to know is a substantial amount of Arabic, because they're like Latin and French, or Latin and Italian. Uh, it's interesting, the word tamim in Hebrew, you look for the verb in Arabic, tama, and it means to be, or to become complete, to be finished, or to be done. You take the noun tamam, and it means completeness or wholeness. You put a prosthetic illit in front of it, and you get a noun, itmam, which means Completion or termination. And you really fix it up in front and get a noun, istitmam, which you see the same root is there, the tamam, and it means conclusion. So God looked at Abraham and said, I want you to get where you're supposed to go. And that's all God cares about, isn't it? There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is. But there's another way. And if you choose it, you'll come to your right istitmam, you'll come to your right conclusion. You'll come to completeness, to wholeness, to the termination of your course. You know, I love that word perfect here. Because it fits in with our doctrinal heritage, where we talk about entire sanctification. I hear students today say, that's very confusing to me. I just don't understand that. I have some sympathy for that, but then at other times, I find myself perplexed. Because God spelled it out very carefully. He spelled it out to, to, to Moses. The one you remember who endured is seeing what he couldn't see. He said to him, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy strength, soul, with all thy strength. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. You're to come to the place where you're one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He says, I want you to be one. And what is that oneness? It's where you've come to the place where the one thing that motivates you and determines that choice you're going to make is, is it right? Is it God's will? Is it his will for me? And you know, there's a fantastic freedom and there's a fantastic unity that comes. When you get out of that realm where you say, shall I or shall I not? But the question is, what? What's right? It's a much simpler life. And it's a single life. 
You will remember that uh, God at times was different with others. I notice it's 12 noon and I'll quit in just one moment. But let me give you this closing thought. I think it's too good to let go. So uh, (laughs) you indulge me. You will remember that uh, with Israel, he gave them the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch, the Torah. A lot of detail. What a time the Jews had trying to figure out whether they kept everything in the Ten Commandments and the Torah. The Ten Commandments was not so bad, but Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy was a bit more of a problem. You come to the New Testament and Jesus gave us a Sermon on the Mount three whole chapters of it, and then the New Testament. It's interesting, he never troubled Abraham with all that, did he? He just looked at Abraham and said, be perfect. (laughs) No details. Because you know what God knew? If you get to the place where you really want what is right, You'll find out. And you won't miss it. Jesus has said, if any man wills to know the doctrine, he will. And if any man wills to know the truth, God won't leave him in the darkness. God will bring him into the light. You know... uh, I'm interested in the fact that God always speaks to us in the imperative. While we put it in the subjunctive or the optative, do you know the difference between those moods? The subjunctive and the optative, you will remember, the moods of desire and of wish and of supposition and of hypothesis and of possibility. If it pays, I may go that way. (laughs) You know, God never looks at us and says, you know, it might be a good idea. It probably would be to your advantage. He thunders in imperative. And you know what our response ought to be? Shouldn't be subjunctives or optatives. Ought to be in the indicative. That's what the psalmist said. I will do thy will, O God. And then one day he found out he could say, I delight to do thy will, O God. What about the unseen part of you? <laughs> 